1939, moviegoers watched in awe as the Wizard of Oz took viewers from the boring black and white scenery of Kansas to the vivid, amazing technicolor beauty of Munchkin Land. And uh, do you remember the scene uh, when uh, Dorothy opens the door? And there through the door, you see for the first time in vivid detail the amazing technicolor beauty of Munchkinland. And at that point, the, first, the next thing that comes out of Dorothy's mouth is, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And from that moment forward through the movie, Dorothy and Toto are off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, as they follow the yellow brick road all the way to Emerald City. And in 586 BC, there's a similar but contrasting story that takes place. And instead of following the yellow brick road to Emerald City to see the wonderful Wizard of Oz, the people of Zion City, the city of Jerusalem, are taken off into exile following the black brick road of captivity to Babylon City, to see the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And unfortunately, their journey was one of discipline, of hardship, exile, and death. And to see this depicted vividly, I want to invite you to open your Bible up to Lamentations chapter 4. As you're turning to Lamentations chapter 4, we're going to see today a vivid, technicolored description of Jerusalem's downfall and destruction. And as we jump back into the book of Lamentations, I want to invite you to put yourself in the story as a character, to walk a mile in their shoes, to feel the emotion of this heavy chapter. If you're a guest with, with us this morning, in fact, I met some people in first service. This was their first time here, and I told them, I'm sorry, this might be the worst time to visit Grace Bible Church. This is a horrible chapter, um, so bear with us. But to remind you of why we're doing this, why are we going through such a depressing book? It's not only to remind us of the darkness and the depression of sin, but it's ultimately to prepare us to celebrate the greatness of our redemption when we come to Easter Sunday here in just a few weeks. But as we look at the fourth poem, the fourth chapter here in the book of Lamentations, you should have also have received uh, outline in your bulletin. You can see we're going to look at Lamentations 4 in three major sections. In verses 1 through 10, we're going to see a great contrast, vividly described. A contrast of what Zion City, the city of Jerusalem, was like before its destruction, contrasted with what it was like during and after the destruction. Then number two on your outline, we're going to see the explanation of why this happened. Why is it that God would allow his people, the people of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, the place where his presence dwelt, to see and to experience such death and destruction? 
And then finally, we'll look at number three on your outline. We will see just a hint of a promise, a reminder that even in exile, God is not finished with Israel forever. So grab your Bible and look first with me at Lamentations chapter 4. Number one on your outline, first we're going to see this contrast, this contrast being made, this before and after scene. What the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem was like before the destruction and after the destruction. First, let's take a look at verse 1. The before and after description of the temple itself. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 1, Jeremiah writes, How dark the gold has become. How the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. Here we see a bit of a before and after describing the temple. Now what you need to understand is that the temple was overlaid with gold. It was a beautiful structure. It was made out of stone, but it was overlaid with gold and uh, it was a beautiful sight to see before the destruction. But what we see here in verse one is the description of what the temple looked like at its destruction. How dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. When the Babylonians came into the city of Jerusalem, they set fire to the city, much like the Romans did in AD 70. And in both scenes, at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and by the Romans in AD 70, when the temple was caught on fire, the gold of the temple literally melted and poured out in the streets. And that's what we see depicted here, how dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. At the second half of verse 1, we see the sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. And we know that when Babylon destroyed the temple, and also again when the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, one of the things they did was they caught fire to the temple. And because of the particular stones that the temple was made of, when it was lit on fire, the uh, pressure caused them to literally uh, explode and to be thrown about the city of Jerusalem. And so you can picture verse 1 in your mind of as the Babylonians light the temple on fire as they destroy the city, a a type of explosion takes place and the, the temple stones are thrown over the city of Jerusalem. The gold of the temple melts and is poured out into the streets. This is the before and after of the temple here in verse 1. The beauty that once was is now utterly destroyed. In verse 2, we see the before and after of the people of Zion City, the city of Jerusalem. Notice verse 2, how the precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold, how they are now regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hands. So here we see the before and after of people, specifically the men of the city of Jerusalem. Notice before the destruction, the precious sons of Zion are regarded as though they are worth their weight in gold. 
But in contrast, during the destruction, they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hands. Now, clay pottery was common in Israel, and at this time, nearly all vessels were made of clay. If you broke a clay jar, you just tossed it aside. It was essentially worthless. And so once again, notice the contrast being painted between the before and after, before the destruction. These precious sons of Zion, the men of Jerusalem, are worth their weight in gold, but now they're tossed aside as worthless clay. In verses 3 and 4, we see a before and after of the children of Jerusalem. Lamentations 4, 3 and 4 says, Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. We've seen already in the book of Lamentations the depressing description of how the children of Judah were treated during the Babylonian siege and destruction. And here, Jeremiah poetically pictures and describes how these children are being treated to that of a jackal and that of an ostrich. Now, jackals were animals known for desolation and destruction, but even jackals nourished their offspring. And in contrast, the mothers of Zion are compared to ostriches who simply lay their eggs in the sand and leave them behind. And that picture is what's used to describe here the mothers of these children as these children's tongue cleave to the roof of their mouth, dying of thirst, as they cry out for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Again, I know these are are tough verses and they're meant to be tough. You're meant to feel the weight and the heaviness of this kind of desperation. In verses five and six, we see another before and after. This time describing the wealthy, the affluent in the city of Jerusalem. Notice Verses 5 and 6 says, There are those who ate delicacies. They're now desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. So here Jeremiah turns his attention to this before and after, describing the affluent, the wealthy of the city of Jerusalem. The wealthy were not spared from this destruction. They used to eat delicacies, but they're now desolate and starving. They used to be dressed in purple, which was a very expensive color. But now notice they clothe themselves in ashes And verse 6 tells us why, because their iniquity, their sin, was even greater than the sin of Sodom. 
In verses 7 and 8, it gets another example of this before and after, this time focusing in on the religious leaders, the priests and the prophets. Notice verses 7 and 8, her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. But then notice now, verse 8, their appearance is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Here we see in vivid color the detail of the religious leaders of the city. They suffer the same fate as everyone else. Notice the colors described there in verse 7. The whiteness depicting their uh, purity. And yet the contrast in verse 8, their appearance is now blacker than soot. They're not even recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones, it's withered, it's become like wood. These pictures of starvation. So not even the religious leaders are spared. And finally, notice verses 9 and 10. To cap it all off, better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. And then notice verse 10, the hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Once again, this is as bad as it gets. Unimaginable horror. As we see... Yet again, in the book of Lamentations, this ugly scene depicted of mothers resorting to cannibalism of their own children just to survive. That's why Jeremiah says in verse 9, it's better to die by the sword than to be killed by hunger. At least dying by the sword is a quick death. This is depressing, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> but look again at the, the before and after, the contrasts being depicted here in these opening verses. Before the exile, the temple was beautiful. It was covered in gold. But because of the exile, the temple lies in ruins, burned to the ground. Before the exile, the men were worth their weight in gold. But because of the exile, they're now worthless. Before the exile, children were well-fed and nourished. But because of the exile, children starve for lack of bread. Before the exile, the rich enjoyed fine food and clothing. But after the exile, the rich are covered in ashes. Before the exile, the religious leaders were pure and clean and dressed in beautiful colors. But after the exile, the religious leaders are unrecognizable. And before the exile, there was plenty of food and there was abundance of life. But because of the exile, there is death. And even the children became the food. We're not in Zion anymore, Toto. This is as dark and depressing as it gets. The question is why? 
How did the people of Judah get this low? How did this type of death and destruction enter into the city of Jerusalem, Zion city? And to answer that question, I want us to look at number two on your outline, the explanation. Lamentations chapter four, verses 11 through 20. In verse 11, we're reminded ultimately why all of this has happened. Notice verse 11, the Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. Here in verse 11, Jeremiah reminds us that ultimately all of this is happening not because of Babylon, but because of the Lord. And keep in mind the background text that I've mentioned every week here in Lamentations, and that is Deuteronomy 28 through 30. This covenant agreement that God had entered into with the people of Judah, the people of Israel, and he told them long before this, both the blessings that would come through obedience and the uh, discipline that would come through disobedience. So here in verse 11, Jeremiah reminds us that ultimately all of this is happening because of the Lord's sovereign hand. But why would God allow this to happen? What is it that the people of Judah did to bring about this kind of God's wrath upon his people? And in verses 12 through 20, we see four big causes, four big reasons for the Lord's anger to come upon the people of Judah. The first reason we see is ultimately false theology, bad theology. Notice verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world notice that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, verse 12 tells us that people wrongly thought, they had this bad theology in their mind that God would never allow the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself to be destroyed. I briefly mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were in Lamentations chapter 3, there in Jeremiah chapter 7. We see this idea that Uh, The people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem thought that as long as they had the temple, they were safe. Uh, The temple became in many ways like a good luck charm or a get out of jail free card. They thought that as long as they had the temple, they were good. They thought that the 23 foot thick walls of Jerusalem were enough to protect them. But those walls were not thick enough to protect them from the discipline of the Lord. The bad theology, the false thinking they had was that the enemy could never enter the gates of Jerusalem. But that wasn't true. Because once again, it's the Lord ultimately who's behind all of this. We see here a great principle that wrong thinking leads to wrong living. That bad theology leads to bad practice. And that's the first reason we see here as to why God would allow this to happen. The second reason we see in verses 13 through 16, 
The second reason God allowed all of this to happen was because of the corruption that existed in the priesthood and the prophets of the people of Judah. Notice verses 13 through 16. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous, They wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. So they fled and wandered among the nations. And the men among the nations said, they shall not continue to dwell with us. And then notice verse 16, the presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. Notice, they did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. Notice verses 13 and 16 both begin and end this section focusing on the priests and the prophets, the elders, the religious leaders of the day. To put it simply, the religious leaders of this particular time were completely corrupt. They gave false prophecy and held out false hope. Here we see they shed blood of innocent people. They themselves were defiled with blood. They were so polluted, the religious leaders, that they were treated like unclean lepers who uh, should have been shouting, unclean, get away from me. And so we're told there in verse 16 that The presence of the Lord scattered them. He did not regard them any longer. So the second major reason we see here why the Lord allowed all of this death and destruction to happen was because of the sin of the religious leaders. The third reason we see why God allowed all of this death and destruction to take place is because of the foreign alliances with pagan nations. that Israel, Judah, had entered into. Notice verses 17 through 19. Yet our eyes failed. Looking for help was useless. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save. Notice they're looking for help. They're looking for help from a pagan nation that could not save. So, verse 18, they hunted hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were finished, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. So we see here the third reason why God allowed all this death and destruction to happen was because the people of Judah had entered into these alliances with pagan nations, thinking that these pagan nations would save them from Babylon. Specifically, the people of Judah had tried to enter into an agreement with Egypt. We see throughout the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, All the prophets, good prophets, warned against trusting in Egypt for protection. But they ignored the voice of the prophets and tried to anyway. So Egypt brought no protection. And instead, we see here that Babylon came in. They were swifter than the eagles of the sky and utterly destroyed the people of Judah. 
The fourth and final reason we see alluded to here is in verse 20. The fourth and final reason why God allowed all of this to happen is because of wicked kings. Wicked kings that led the people of Judah. Notice verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. And that phrase, the Lord's anointed there, um, often refers to the king's. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. So again, the people thought as long as they had kings, they were good. But as you read the history of the people of Judah, uh, bad kings more and more entered in to lead them. And this was the fourth and final reason alluded to here as to why God allowed the people of Judah to be destroyed. Uh, By the way, uh, most likely the specific king referred to here in verse 20 was King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, when Jerusalem fell, he tried to escape. He tried to flee and run away, but he was caught. And what Babylon did, they captured him, they captured his children, and before King Zedekiah's very eyes, they killed his children and then plucked out his eyes. So the last thing he saw was the death of his own children before he was carried away in chains. This is a terrible scene, isn't it? It's absolutely horrible as you, as you put yourself in the shoes of these people and, and try to see what they saw. It's painful to read. But we see again that the results of sin are devastating. We see death and destruction every step along the way in Lamentations. And we're reminded again, we are not in Zion anymore, Toto. The blessed life that God promised to give the people of Judah if they simply obeyed him was amazing, but instead they chose the road of sin and idolatry and corrupt leaders and bad theology and foreign alliances with pagan nations. They chose disobedience, and this is the result. But thankfully, as we look at number three on your outline, there is a little bit of hope here. There's a little bit of a bright spot in the book of Lamentations. We see really two promises in verses 21 and 22. The first promise is that one day, God's justice is going to come over all, all the earth. And the second promise we see in these final two verses of chapter four is that one day Judah's exile will end. Let's take a look at these two promises Lamentations chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. First, verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz. But the cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. Let's pause right here for just a second. Here, God, through Jeremiah, focuses in on the land of Edom or the land of Uz, not the land of Oz, but the land of Uz. And to the land of Uz, to the people of Edom, who are historically enemies of the people of Israel, 
Right now, they are looking in on the destruction of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, and they are rejoicing. They're glad over what they see, but notice the promise at the second half of verse 21. But you might be rejoicing now, but the cup will come around to you as well, and you will become drunk and make yourself naked. We see here this promise in verse 21, and we've seen it uh, over and over again in Lamentations that God's discipline over the people of Judah is a reminder of his ultimate promise that one day his justice will reign over all the earth. One day he will judge all the peoples of the earth, and we see that promise here. The people of Uz, the people of Edom, might be rejoicing now over Judah's destruction, but one day their destruction is coming as well. And then finally in verse 22, we see more of a positive promise that Judah's exile will not last forever. Notice verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion. He will exile you no longer, but he will punish your iniquity. O daughter of Edom, he will expose your sins. So once again, we see the reminder that one day God will punish Edom. He'll punish the land of Uz. But the positive aspect of the promise is that the punishment of, iniquity, the punishment of Zion's iniquity won't last forever. He will exile you no longer. One day, in other words, God will bring his people back into the promised land. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, Look again at verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz. It's fascinating that um, the Wizard of Oz, the book, when it was translated into Hebrew the translators chose to translate the Wizard of Oz instead as the Wizard of Uz because of what it would mean for Jews even today. And so if you were to read the Wizard of Oz in Hebrew, you actually read the Wizard of Uz. And so the promise we really see here is that the great and powerful Uz is going to get what's coming to him. But this is Lamentations 4. Yet another dark, depressing, and devastating chapter in the book of Lamentations. In many ways, it's the same song, fourth verse of this very sad song. So the question I want to ask is, as we look at this entire chapter, what is something unique about chapter 4? Compared to all the other chapters, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 5, what is unique about Lamentations chapter 4? And there is one really interesting aspect to Lamentations chapter 4, and it has to do with this uh, very clear contrast between what once was and what now is. This contrast between uh, what the city of Zion used to be before its destruction and what it was during and after its destruction. And the very unique feature of chapter 4 is the concentration of words associated with colors in this fourth chapter, especially the first section, number one on your outline. For the scholars in the room, I stole this idea from Adele Berlin, who says this. She says, color 
is one of the striking features of this chapter. You have gold and scarlet in verses 1, 2, and 5. You have white, red, sapphire, and black in verses 7 and 8. Bright colors represent the earlier conditions pre-exile, but as the famine progresses, the colors are erased from the picture and all that remains is dullness and blackness. So think of it this way. Uh, Movie makers today, like in The Wizard of Oz, use color to communicate and to tell part of their story. And likewise, Jeremiah was doing the same here in Lamentations 4 with the use of of color. Color indicates that something is changing. And here, Lamentations 4 takes us on this journey of this bright, vivid, technicolor beauty of the city of Zion before the destruction to now the death and destruction and depressing black and white picture of the city of Zion during and after its destruction. Through the use of color imagery, Jeremiah invites us on this journey. And we conclude we are not in Zion anymore, Toto. Jeremiah is telling us through the use of color that a degradation is happening. Things are moving from bad to worse. Things are moving from ultimately life to death. Think about this for a minute. In terms of application, even in our own life, if we're honest, sin does the same thing to us, doesn't it? In our own life, if we're honest, as we are tempted with some particular sin, at first it's very enticing, it's very alluring, it draws us in. But if we continue on that path long enough, we realize that that road ultimately leads to destruction. There are times when sin truly does seem enticing. I'm reminded, though, of the quote, you've heard it before, that sin will take you further than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And we see through the use of color here in Lamentations chapter 4, that story ultimately being told of where the road of sin ultimately takes us. I remember when I was a student at DTS, I remember a chapel speaker one time talking about the negative effects and consequences of sin in our life and yet the uh, alluring uh, aspect of sin and temptation. And he said this, he said, listen, when you begin to fantasize about some particular sin, whatever it is, as you imagine in your mind what this sinful uh, world will be like for you, The advice he gave is to take that fantasy to its logical conclusion and ultimately to fantasize the consequences. To fantasize the consequences. To see where this dead end road ultimately heads as we're wrestling and struggling with temptation of whatever sin it is. Lamentations chapter 4 really does take us on this journey and it shows two paths. Two ways to live. We can choose to follow the black brick road of sin that leads to death. Or we can 
Instead, follow a different path. The path of joyful obedience that comes through repentance. Remember, this entire series is really a push uh, towards repentance for all of us as we're preparing our hearts, preparing our life to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, ultimately, this series is, is about repentance. Repentance, remember, Charles Ryrie defines as a genuine change of mind that affects the life in some way. Repentance begins with a different way of thinking of realizing that the sin, whatever it is, whatever sin you struggle with or I struggle with, we, we change our mind about uh, what it truly is. And then as we change our mind, it should impact the way we live in some way. But like the scene in, in Luke 15, another aspect of repentance is that repentance ultimately leads to joy. To joy. Sometimes we wrongly think that repentance is this uh, just horrible thing. We don't like to do it. But ultimately, uh, repentance, when you look at repentance all throughout Scripture, it's, it's, it's truly rooted in joy, knowing that instead of choosing this life of sin, we can choose a life of technicolor, life-giving Christ-likeness instead. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, he said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And what I hope you're seeing as we're working through the book of Lamentations is uh, the road of destruction that will await us if we choose a life of sin. But on the positive, what I want you to see is ultimately the life of joy that will follow if we choose a life of obedience to our Savior. The good news of the gospel is that because we're forgiven, because we're recipients of God's eternal accepting love, because we know that we're loved by him no matter what, then that means that we can freely and openly confess our sin to him, knowing that Jesus paid it all and that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And that should produce an incredible joy inside of us. And so to close us once again, I want to lead you in our prayer of repentance, pausing along the way so that you can silently pray, confess, repent in your own heart to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker and judge of us all, we do acknowledge and lament our many sins and offenses which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty. Provoking most justly your righteous anger against us, we are deeply sorry for these our transgressions. The burden of them is more than we can bear. Have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that has passed and grant that we may evermore serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord.
If you would, please take a moment of silent confession in your own heart. And Father, now as we confess our sin, we trust in your word that says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Father, we we do thank you for forgiving us, for redeeming us, for loving us, for saving us. And Father, I I pray for myself, for each one here, for those watching online, that we would uh, be able to live in the joy of knowing that we're forgiven that you would fill our hearts with rejoicing, knowing that Jesus paid it all. Father, help us to live a life of obedience. Help us to live a life of repentance, knowing that by the power of your spirit who is within us, we can live for you, we can honor you, we can glorify you and give us the joy of truly walking in obedience to you. I ask and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.